my guest today. John Hodgman is a writer, comedian, and actor. You may know him as the personal computer in a series of long-running commercials for Apple Computer or from his recurring roles in TV on shows like Married, Bored to Death, and The Nick. But he actually started and built his career in the world of writing as a literary agent in New York before stepping into the role as a writer of his own books, then finding himself on The Daily Show in a simple segment that he thought was just about promoting his first book. But that segment would land him a series of recurring roles on the show as the, quote, resident expert and then the deranged millionaire and launch him into the world of TV and writing, acting, producing, performing on stage and hosting the long-running Judge John Hodgman podcast where he settles really important disputes between real people. Things like, is a hot dog a sandwich? (laughs) Now the author of multiple books, including a series filled with fake facts and invented trivia, and his latest memoir, Medallion Status, kind of a meditation on status, what we value, strive for, and relinquish as we move through sort of the changing seasons of life. We explore his remarkable, perpetually shifting journey in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. You grew up outside of, I guess, Brooklyn's like kind of part of Boston, yeah. suburb-ish. So my early growing up was on the much more suburban uh, okay. western end of Brookline, which was now very affluent. At the time, upper middle class to affluent, I would say. I didn't mean to move to New York ever. I always thought that I would move back to Boston. Oh, no kidding. But my um, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, had moved to New York and said, no, you're going to move to New York. And I did. I, uh, I hated it. I never liked it. Uh, I never liked Manhattan at all. I mean, obviously Manhattan's wonderful. It's just like, it's the center of so much. And yet I had grown up sort of being in love with underdogs Mm. and Manhattan is a top dog, you know, like, even though I was not a sports fan growing up, I understood the Red Sox and could feel a kinship because they were losers. Whereas the Yankees were like rooting for bullies, you know, at the time. And moving to Manhattan felt like a real betrayal of that to some degree. Mm. And also, I just found everything to be too narrow. (laughs) The sidewalks were so narrow, and I was constantly bumping elbows with people in stores and stuff. It's okay to bump elbows. Just don't eyeball anyone. (laughs) No, I know. Well, I mean, yeah, the the incredible human density of New York and really any city is such such an education and how how much you can tolerate. Like, it's... You know, one of the things that happened to me when I first moved to New York, actually, my my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was sharing an apartment with our close friend, Christine, on the Upper East Side. And I was visiting them and I had a, a job or a job interview downtown. So I was taking the, uh, whatchamacallit, the 456 train. Very, very small trains. Very, very crowded. And I moved my way into the center of the car like you're supposed to do. I knew that. And a guy who's, you know, standing up holding a strap. And there may have even been a strap at that time. Turns around and goes, stop touching my back. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. Like, I must have inadvertently brushed his back with my elbow or my bag or whatever. And he looked at me and said, stop effing touching me. And I said, I'm sorry. And then he hit me. And all of a sudden, this crowded train was just him and me. Like, everyone moved away. There were, it was like, somehow they found space to get out of our way. And he just hit me and, you know, he, well, he hit me with his elbow. Like he was holding the strap and just elbowed me in the face. And I was stunned. I didn't move. Everyone freaked out. He sat down into one of the now newly empty seats. And we were all stuck together on that train. And it was very terrifying. A couple stops go by. I mean, we have to be there together. You know what I mean? And a couple of stops go by and he's in tears. And he said, I'm really sorry. I'm just having a really bad day. I really apologize. I'm like, it's okay. And I I think about that all the time. You know, we live in a time where we're having real difficulty tolerating each other as neighbors. And there's so much suspicion of other people. And I feel happy every day I'm in New York, and in particular in Manhattan, because it is denser and more diverse than where I live in Brooklyn. Like, yeah, you know, 
there are people who are freaking out over immigration, cultural difference, diversity, feeling threatened by it. It's like, I'm so lucky to live in a place that is so dense and diverse with different cultures, backgrounds, languages, points of view, that I don't even think about it anymore. I was like, I get why if you're in a world where your human landscape surrounding you pretty much all looks the same. And this could be parts of Michigan or Wisconsin. It could be Maine. It can be lots of parts of Massachusetts. Do you know what I mean? Like how diversity could feel a little scary. And this isn't to poop on these parts of the world. Like there's incredible virtue in, you know, rural landscapes. I'm not saying that cities are necessarily better, but cities do offer you one thing. You're stuck together and you realize it's not a big deal. It's going to be fine. Like diversity is great. It's like we all get along. It's terrific. I mean, yeah, sometimes someone punches you in the face, but then you're stuck together and you realize, oh, this person's crying. Right. Like, what we're an, all suffering. Right. What an amazing moment. And do you ever wonder, you're like, what if you or he had sort of like, you know, the doors had opened seconds after that had opened and one of you chose to exit and you never had the full circle moment like right. in the intervening seconds where all of a sudden, instead of just being offended or hurt or pissed off, you're like, you had the opportunity to, to, to acknowledge and see another person's humanity and their suffering. Yeah. I mean- uh, I, 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 it was the fact that we were stuck together that nice. allowed us to see each other as humans over time. Not a long time. Didn't take long. But I mean, if, yeah, if I, if I had, a, if the doors had opened and I had gotten out, I had to get to work. You know what I mean? I couldn't get off the train and he had to go wherever he was going. But if one of us had gotten out, I don't know what we would have thought of each other necessarily. I don't, I, I'm grateful for that experience. But that narrowness is what I associate with. Manhattan. And it's true that when I came out with a book and went on TV and like we were going to leave New York altogether because we couldn't afford to raise a family here until I had this accidental creative and financial windfall of going on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and then the Apple ads after that. And we were able to stay here, you know, because the city is not designed for medium income people. And we moved to Park Slope. And it absolutely, you know, just to circle around to what you said, it absolutely felt like Brookline, Massachusetts yeah. to me. It's like, this is this is where I breathe. Four or five-story homes, wider sidewalks, felt just like the Back Bay or Brookline, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. With easy access to the madness in Manhattan, in a couple of subway stops away, hopefully easy, without another easy, easy access? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You grew up, so Brookline also, um, you're an only kid also, which is really interesting in the context of what you just described too, because- as an only kid, a lot of the sort of like the wrap around that is you grow up in a way where, where there's amazing benefits, a lot of attention, but oh, yeah. also not necessarily this All built-in opportunities to tolerate and, and enjoy conflict and see as like healthy oh, interactions and right. are adversarial. Yeah. No, I mean, I had a, you know, I describe being an only child as being a member of the worldwide super smart afraid of conflict narcissist club. And the conflict and the afraid of conflict part is very intense. Because if you are an only child, and if you're like me and had no natural inclination or interest in sports, you didn't have siblings to tussle with or fight with, yell at and be yelled at by. And similarly, you didn't even have the benefit of playing a sports game and taking the wins and taking the losses and those those frustrations and, realize, and, and rehearsing the ritual of conflict. 
getting so mad at the other team and then whatever, shaking hands with them or what, like, you know what I mean? Like healthy, healthy conflict that teaches you that it's not automatically fatal. And I just presume that any disagreement was fatal. And not only that, but like any highly charged emotional one-on-one personal interaction was terrifying to me for the same reason, even affection. So it took me a while to shake that off. Well, it seems like you also, you, it, it seems like you almost started to create personas to step into at a pretty young age. Rumor has it, rocking high school with long hair, fedora, and a briefcase. Yeah, I was but not like many the, different styles <laughs> all at <laughs> <Right>. the same time. <laughs> so, so was that like, was that you putting up barriers to protect yourself or searching for a sense of identity? I really, I mean, there are a couple of things. I, I like a lot of pretentious only children. I really wanted to be interesting and being interesting was very important to me. And I attempted to be interesting the way a lot of people try to be interesting, which is through affectation, you know, through weird signals like I am, I have long hair and, but I also wear a fedora. Am I, am I a hippie or am I Indiana Jones? And I carried a briefcase and I wore a big overcoat and, you know, I tried to steep myself and you know, not non sort of, you know, not the popular bands, but the but the cool like Talking Heads, Laurie Anderson. I was trying like I I was the kind of kid who like I um you know I wanted to play a musical instrument, but uh and I was offered violin lessons. I'm like, no, I'll take viola. Violin's a little on the nose. Everyone does that. And I'm like, and I'll add clarinet, not saxophone. It's like anything just to not be the same. Yeah. There's nothing particularly unique about my desire to be interesting. I think we all want to be recognized for having valid interests, but I was covering I wasn't cultivating interests so much as I was cultivating an, an array of affectations that would make me seem interesting to other people. It's not like I was afraid of being uninteresting. I think I was pretty interesting anyway, but and the other thing was like I I never thought about it as trying to hide myself. I I I affected, even though I was trying on different styles very early on, I, you know, I kind of was, I was kind of was born at the age of like 39, (laughs) 39 to 44, you know, that was kind of where I saw myself because I was so terrified of the sexual part of adolescence that I wanted to skip it and just become the sexless gentleman bachelor that I, that I thought I was destined to become anyway kind of this Edward Gorey type asexual figure who wore a long, a long fur coat and tennis shoes. Like, only because I was not into fur is the only reason I didn't try to rock that outfit. <laughs> you know, and we and because I was an only child and we lived in this huge house that my mom and dad got for a song because it was falling apart in Brookline. There was this whole wing of the house that we had rented out to various tenants over the years. And once I was in high school, the tenant left. And before my parents could rent it to another one, I took possession of this suite of rooms. I mean, this apartment within the house so that I could pretend to be a grown up. Like I had my own living room. I broke apart my bunk beds because all only children have bunk beds. It's a symbol of our material excess and ultimately our deep loneliness. And I took them apart and put them in an L-shaped formation to kind of create a sectional sofa with some bolsters. I had an old school desk. I put a, uh, a manual typewriter there with a library light and a fern that I found. I mean, I don't know where I was getting ferns at that time, but it was my study, you know. And to some degree, I think that that into, that sort of 
affected intellectual adulthood was designed to signal not available for scary hugging and kissing. But I think it was also designed very much to signal available, but only if you get this, you know, like, yeah. like I'm sending out signals to the weirdos of the world. I'm with you. And I hope, and I, and, and not surprisingly, there are other weirdos and we all found each other in high school and, and they're a all lot great of, friends. Right. It's like a, yeah. be, a beacon. This is. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Come join. Yeah. Let's go for walks. I'm, I'm lonely. Come, yeah. cr- come roll 20 sided dice with me. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause you ended up on the radio in high school also, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I, uh, I had started a, a zine, which was a thing that existed at right, the time. Yeah. For those of you who were born in the contemporary era. In the 80s and 90s when I was I was a teenager in the 80s and into the early 90s. And zines were photocopied do-it-yourself magazines. They, they were everything. Yeah, they were, the, <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, they, were, they were how weirdos found each other before there yeah. was the internet. And, you know, a lot of them were organized around music or countercultural Man. obsessions, true crime, weird films, whatever it was. But you would write your zine photocopy it and then you would buy a listing in fact sheet five which was this big directory of zines and the the guy i can't remember his name would review the zines you would send it in and he would review it and write it up and then people would order it from you so some friends of mine and i in high school did a zine called samizdat it was so pretentious samizdat being uh, the russian term for soviet dissident literature that was hand distributed because we were underground at the high school we're an alternative Literary and cultural zine within the high school, Brookline High School, an alternative to the to the sanctioned, you know, quote unquote, high school newspaper and literary magazine. And we just like published weird stuff. But we were like the it it was I, I wish I could say it was not lost on us, but it was totally lost on us that our <laughs> underground zine, our co- like my co-editors among them were the son of the principal of the high school. And he gave us permission to print the thing off at town hall. Like, uh, hindsight. Yeah, you, know, you know what I mean? So, But we had to get a, to be sanctioned, we had to get a um, faculty supervisor. Mm. And so we knew exactly who we were going to get. It was going to be this guy, Joe McClellan, who was a, a mysterious faculty member. We've figured out that he was essentially the permanent substitute teacher in the French department. He had to have been 35 or so at the time. Had had long hair and wore a leather jacket and rode a motorcycle and wore a beret and spoke French. And we were just like, who's this dude? <laughs> like, this is this is the kind of weirdo that we that I wanted to become. Mm. And Joe had a had, Joe had I was going to say a podcast, but there weren't such things at the time. Joe had a radio show on WMFO, which was the Tufts University college radio station and Tufts University WMFO, I should say, had a policy of reserving a, a majority of time on air for student DJs, but they reserved a, a, a certain amount of time for community members because that was their mission, to bring in members of the community to feature alternative yeah. voices. And what I think their mission was, was like, let's bring in underrepresented minority voices in the Medford-Somerville community or political dissidents or, eh, eh, you know, some. No, I don't think they had in mind that they were going to Feature someone, not even from the community, someone from three towns away who was a, a, a junior or senior in high school 
just to play Billy Bragg and Tom Waits songs. Kind of gamed the system a little. I gamed the system. <laughs> right. Well, Joe had this radio show and he was yeah. going on, I think he was going on summer vacation. And I was like, I'll fill in for you. And we arranged it. And that's how I started doing it. And we had very, I mean, I had very few listeners. There was one guy who would call in from Cambridge. I would take requests. It's like, play the saddest song you know. I, <laughs> I played Man of the Iron Mask by Billy Bragg. And he called back. He said, really? Is that all you got? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> not sad me, enough. Give me the cure. Give me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is pretty sad, pretty emo song. But but yeah, no, I, lo- I mean, I loved it. But that was sort of like, for a very, I was a, I was a very good kid who followed the rules. I was a good student. I did all my homework. I didn't I was basically completely straight edge, as we called it, till senior year of high school when I began occasionally drinking a beer, but like never did drugs, never got in trouble, yeah. whatever. I was still looking for adventures of one kind or another. I was still like I really, really, really wanted to to have jobs. I really wanted to get into the adult world. I d- I liked high school. I loved all my friends, but. I think there's nothing more than at least this only child wanted than to be an adult. And so as soon as I could get a job legally, I was working in the stock room at a furniture store on Newbury Street and working at the movie theater, you know, washing dishes at a weird restaurant in the, what was called the combat zone at the time. Not a weird restaurant, just a, a small and eccentric restaurant. Um, and, you know, like if I saw an opportunity to host a radio show. Friday afternoons, I was going to get in there. Have at it. Yeah. yeah. You got to yeah. earn that briefcase. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, right. I had to, I had to put some, I had to put some actual interesting life work into that case in order yeah. for it to not just be an empty shell. Yeah. So. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in 
one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You go from there and you end up in Yale. Same time as Jonathan Colton. You yeah. guys become buddies. Um, yeah. I guess really good friends to this day. I would I would dare say best friends. Yeah. But don't tell him I said that. Of course not. Because we're both from New England. <laughs> Crippling emotional reticence is what we're built of. I think it would freak him out. It's the DNA of your existence. Yeah. He's, uh, he's from Connecticut. I'm from Massachusetts. There are no best friends in our world. Then you jump into New York, as you mentioned. And you jump into New York, coming out of Yale with a degree in lit also, straight into the publishing industry. Also had a really interesting time in publishing because a lot of stuff is changing around that time. I ended up pretty quickly getting a job as the receptionist at a literary agency. And Seth Godin came in and gave the PowerPoint presentation that he was going around giving to publishers. And as a favor to Amy Burkauer, who was our fearless co-commander, incredibly smart person, she said, come in and show this to our people. And he did. And we all went up to the second floor dining room and he showed us this PowerPoint and he, sh- and he mapped it out. Amazon knows more about readers than any other publisher ever. They have hard data, whereas, you know, every other publisher and bookseller has kind of soft data. Barely, they have st- bare statistics. Uh, they have the addresses of all the people who have bought stuff from them. They're able to do direct permission marketing. That was his big thing at the time, yeah. permission marketing. And they are developing a platform to, de- to deliver electronic books directly via the internet. And you, re- you see this coming together. What possible reason would there be for Amazon not to be a content creator and publisher in the near future? It'll never happen. <laughs> I think that was the reaction across the entire industry. Though. Right. Everyone was like, ah, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> well, because it was almost too terrifying yeah, to exactly. contemplate. Right. I mean, that's like, I, I, I mean, like uh, this, is not me, this is not yeah. me saying I was smarter than my senior colleagues. I think that they saw there was a big shift coming in the industry and they they were wary about jumping on exactly what what that shift what shape that shift would take they were taking a kind of a wait and see attitude and for me i i basically knew like 
I got to get out of this business. Like to, it wasn't like I knew better. I was like, I'm out of here. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But you got out of the agenting side, but you didn't get out of publishing and writing. In fact, like you went, no, I mean, right. Confluence of things. Like there's this, your mom passes right around there right. also, which is also sounds like that, that happening played a major role in your decision to also say, you know what, I need to actually, I need to change the role I'm playing in this space. Yeah. Well, I mean, because part of the reason that I was at the agency in the first place was that I was afraid of being a writer mm. and being a creator, which is what I knew in my heart I wanted to do. I had applied to like some MFA programs and got accepted to some, got, got waitlisted at others, decided I didn't want to deal with it because I thought, you know what? Why don't I live in the city with my friends whom I love and these new colleagues and this wonderful, this wonderful townhouse and find other writers to do the hard work and I'll take some of their money. Maybe I'll be a businessman. Well, I'm a terrible businessman. Like, how can someone who is like I was great at finding writers and interesting ideas and I was great at having lunch with editors and sort of talking about books and thinking about books. Creatively, I was in tune, but how could someone who was terrified of conflict ever be a good negotiator? It was like, I was awful at it. I was the worst, like I was the worst negotiator in the world and I knew it. Right. And and that is fundamentally your job as, yeah. as an agent. Yeah. I'm like, I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's a beautiful townhouse and we're, we get to have these long lunches and afternoons off in the, on Friday. And we think about books and we talk about books, but at the end of the day, we're selling widgets. It's a sales job. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is not for me at all. So that's where I was sort of in this world of um, grave discomfort as my time and complacency wore on there. And I was moving into my seventh year, sort of repping people and trying to do my best, but also writing for magazines a little on the side because I had friends who now were, you know, working at magazines and assigning at magazines and magazines still existed. So when Seth Godin came in and you know, projected the writing on the wall, I was already beginning to feel like, mm, this is, this whole business is changing and I don't want to, I don't want to stay in it. But my clients will get so mad at me if I quit. And as you say, you know, as you know, I do not like conflict. I do not like people being mad at me. But then of course my mom got very sick with cancer, lung cancer diagnosed and the illness progressed very quickly. And I went home to Brookline to help take care of her. And I was there for six months before she passed away. And I stayed a couple of months after that because it was summertime. And I realized that the world, you know, I realized two things. Well, you know, one doesn't last forever. You're not here forever. And the world will go on without you. Like those clients didn't care that I was gone. They felt they cared that I was gone because they felt bad for me and they, and they cared about me. And when I called them to say, I think I need to do something else. They're like, yeah, you do. I was like, yeah. I got to get, I got to start doing it right away. So luckily my friend Mark Adams was assigning editor at um, Men's Journal at the time, offered me a chance to write about food. That was my first regular column for a magazine. From then on, I just kept getting rescued from one failing business to another. I got rescued from book publishing by magazines. I got rescued from magazines by cable television and I don't think I got rescued from cable television. <laughs> I think I went down with the ship. <laughs> kind of kept going for a long time there. Kept going for a long time. Because you end up, yeah, you end up eventually. I got, I got semi-rescued by some streaming services, including Amazon, you know. Right, to a certain extent. Yeah, right? like I got hired yeah. to, you know, my my very unexpected on-camera career. I started to be able to do some 
comedic acting. And like, you know, I, I worked on a couple of episodes of this show called Red Oaks, which was being produced by Amazon. I'm like, if Seth Godin could see me now, like they became what he predicted they would become. A, 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 not not necessarily a publishing house of books because they realized why that's too low a margin. Right, but they became- They, they, they became, became a content creators. creators. Yeah, yeah. 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 They uh, became a studio. 100%. Yeah. You, you end up actually, you go from writing articles and columns to then writing books. That's the thing that then leads you. You reference, you end up on cable for years. But that whole thing starts also from- you end up on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart promoting your first book. Right. And that turns into then them saying, huh, maybe like, well, this was fun. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's some other role you can keep playing with us. Yeah, it was astonishing and tr truly hallucinatory yeah. experience. I mean, to explain, so by the time I left Writer's House, I had cobbled together a little living writing freelance magazine articles initially mostly for Men's Journal and then moving on to profiles and stuff for the New York Times Magazine. I was also writing for Dave Eggers's McSweeney's. Yeah, literary journal and humor website called McSweeney's. And for McSweeney's, and you know, it's like there are a couple of people who, who truly changed the course of my life. And I don't think I necessarily credit Dave publicly as often as I should because I started writing sort of absurdist humor for McSweeney's and Dave was like, keep doing this. This is this is what you should be doing. Mm. And he was absolutely I right, you know. Dave and Dave and Mark Adams both were like, you I thought I thought my job was to be profound and interesting. Remember when I was 14 years old and I was trying to be profound and interesting? But both Mark and Dave said to me, you know, you're funny. I'm like, yeah, but that's that's lesser, isn't it? And they're like, no. Like Mark Adams was like, you should you should go ahead and be funny when you're writing for magazines. Like, n not everybody can do it. And I'm like, oh, really? They can't? What's wrong with them? It's just part of part, part of like, life. But isn't that cheating? Because it's just what I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and George Saunders, you know, in an interview with Jesse Thorne, my good friend and co-host of the podcast, but Jesse is a great interviewer and it was interviewing George Saunders. And George Saunders said something that really resonated with me, which is like, when I learned or allowed, when I learned it was okay for me to be funny, because he thought he was, the job of an author was to be serious. When I learned it was okay to be funny, I, I felt like I had been in a boxing ring my whole life with one arm tied behind my back. And now I had use of both of my hands. And that's what it felt like to me. So I started writing this column for the McSweeney's website called Ask a Former Professional Literary Agent, because I was one where people would write in with real questions. And then, you know, I solicited real questions. And, and they initially were advice about like how to break into the industry. And I would give them advice from the point of view of this deranged, authoritative blowhard who had a very limited grasp on reality, who had been a professional literary agent and left. And his name was John Hodgman. But if you asked him, you know, what kind of novel should I write? It's like, really, what kind of hat should you be wearing? Like, what, st what style of beret should you be wearing? How do you make yourself seem interesting? And then the the advice got more, got more sort of di uh, diverse in subject matter. And I just kept, I kept presenting the most ridiculous, absurd falsehoods with the deadpan authority of, of a, of a straight white Yale educated man. And this was a shtick 
that I enjoyed. And I ended up translating that into my first book, The Areas of My Expertise, which was just a list of complete world knowledge, all of which was made up by me, but presented in a very deadpan way. So it would be a book of a list of fascinating historical trivia, but unlike other books where it would be like the nine U.S. presidents who smoked cigars, this would be the nine U.S. presidents who secretly had hooks for hands. And we never, no one at, in the 40s and 30s, no one ever talked about FDR having a hook for a hand because, uh, you know, it was shaped like a wheelchair or something like some just absurd stuff like that. Or I think the joke was that he was only photographed from the wrist up mm. in the way that, you know, in real life, no one ever talked about him having, you know, polio because they never showed his wheelchair, you know. Anyway, the areas of my expertise came out and I went on The Daily Show to promote it. And John Stewart and I had a good time talking about all those fake, fake facts. And Ben Carlin was the executive producer at the time. And much to my, I mean, uh, you know, I, I went into that thing. The, the book itself was weird. I'm, I'm a weirdo. And I had a feeling like, yeah, this book might only resonate with about 5,000 McSweeney's readers nationwide, if I'm lucky. Maybe it'll hit bigger, may, but, but maybe it just won't. Maybe it's like a 1,000 weirdos like me will get it. And indeed, that was coming true as I went on my first book tour before The Daily Show. Like, I was going into bookstores and seven, eight, nine, fifteen people were there and they left confused. They did not know what I was talking about. They did not get the joke at all. Or one or two maybe did. But then I went on The Daily Show and I told the same jokes and heard the most remarkable sound, which was people laughing at the, at the jokes, including John. And he, like, I found my people. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he, but he basically, you know, another obviously person changed the course of my life, but he, he gave people permission to get the jokes yeah. and like, and that's, that was something that I realized people in, in order to in, enjoy what I make, people need a permission structure. <laughs> Because it's easy to look at them and go like, this is not really about anything, or this isn't meaningful, or, you know, this is funny, but not that funny, or I don't get this. What does this joke mean? And John really gave people permission to, you know, he really gave it an endorsement. Yeah. And I think he also created this container. <laughs> yeah. With like a certain set of rules and values and expectations where people are like, all right, I'm signing up for this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. He was a curator of right. talent. And I was astonished enough that he would have me on the show at all. And I thought there will be nothing more life-changing than this. Because indeed, the next day I flew to Seattle to pick up the book tour again. And instead of 17 people, there were 300 people. Oh, I was wow. like liter literally overnight. Instant. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It went from, the book went from somewhere in like the 14,000s ranking on Amazon to seven on Amazon. So- uh, you know, I hadn't appreciated. I was excited because I was on my favorite show in the world. I hadn't appreciated how much of a difference I was going to have. I'm like, this is life changing. I will be able to write another book. That's what this means. I didn't know it would mean that I would be called five weeks later to come back and do it again by the show and join the show as a cast member and have my life kidnapped by television. Yeah. I didn't see that coming at all. I mean, it's so interesting how that happens. It's it's like this, it just out of the blue, it's this random thing that completely changes the trajectory of everything. Yeah. 
because you end up so you end up being a regular on the Daily Show as a resident expert. Um, yeah, doing the same the same the same shtick. sort of like shtick for the ideal, almost a decade. Yeah, yeah. No, I was there from I started in early two thousand six, and I ended with John right he in mid twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah. so nine years. And I was initially I was the resident expert, and this was obviously a direct riff of what I was right. doing in my books of fake complete world knowledge. Maybe people now everybody's doing alternative facts. It's very very popular. But at the time, it was just me. You were trend spotter. <laughs> I I was, but I was like I recognized like you know the the paucity, you know the the hollowness of expertise, and people were being brought in to cable television all the time to be experts on a particular subject, and you had no sense of whether they were an expert or not, other than the Chiron beneath them saying expert. And I you know when Ben Carlin said you want to try to do some more stuff for the show. I said, yeah, what you guys need is a Tweety know-it-all white man who simply because he looks like an expert, everyone will take seriously, even if he's talking about the most obviously absurd or even awful things. And then I transitioned later in the show to a different role, which was the deranged millionaire, which was based on Donald Trump. That was when I was like, yeah, you know what's happening in cable now is a angry white maybe billionaire is wandering onto the Fox set to spin conspiracy theories about Barack Obama's birth because he wants to talk right now. We need someone like that. So I became the deranged millionaire. Because this happens, so this all kicks off in 2006. Yeah. And this sets in motion this whole career for you. At the same time, you're getting known for that. You're getting known for the books. You're getting known for the role on The Daily Show. And then this commercial yeah. drops, which, you know, like if... The Daily Show had a large but very focused and sort of, you know, like very specific audience. Somehow you land in this commercial, like the, the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercial. Right. Playing the role of the PC. I'm a PC. And, and that becomes this massive national thing that turns into a series of commercials that run for what, like another three, four, five years? Uh, three, year, three to four years. Right. Which gets you known on a completely different scale and also yeah. for a completely different reason. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was it it was astonishing and you know hallucinatory, as I say. Like I thought I had fallen down the stairs and I was having a dream. Because here's the thing: like I went on the Daily Show to promote the book, and I thought nothing crazier is ever going to happen than this. Right. That I'm on the Daily Show as a cast member, at, you know, by January of 2006. So I went on the show as a guest, November of 2005. See, I've got it memorized because mm. I think I think about it all the time. By March of 2006, I'm being asked to audition for these ads. I love adventures. I love jobs. I'll audition. Why not? I'm curious. I'm curious to find out why they were thinking of me for this thing. Turns out they're thinking of everyone in the world. But I was like, I'll go in audition for this thing, for this job I'm never going to get. Maybe I'll get a story out of it. But then I got the job and it ruined the story. And suddenly I'm on this national ad campaign for Apple Computer, which is a you know company that I, everything that I had ever created of any value, I had created on a Apple product. Computers is what they made at the time before there were phones, you know, working at, a, at, you know, with Justin Long, who played the PC, and Phil Morrison, uh, the director of all of those ads. But now suddenly in this world, and two, still very, both very good friends of mine, but now in this world of both outward-facing and inward-facing celebrity that I had no understanding of. Outward-facing celebrity meaning, unlike The Daily Show, which was seen by I think 2 million people a night. Those ads were seen by millions and millions and millions of people. And they did not know my name. 
but they would see me. And they're like, aren't you? And people would freak out because I was the PC guy. The PC guy. (laughs) And visual fame is very different than podcast or radio fame. Because podcasts and radio or writing, too, you know, like novel writer fame or whatever, is very intimate. You live with that person. They're in your house. They're in your mind. But visual fame, TV, movies, you just see the, the, the glamorous image of a person in your screen, you don't expect to see them at the urinal next to you. And it's astonishing and weird. People freak. It tests people's understanding of reality. So then you're part of their hallucinogenic dream. And the inward facing part of celebrity, of course, is just the, the sheer, the sheer amount of catering. Like, first of all, literal sandwiches and snacks, but also emotional whatever catering. Whatever else is on the rider. <laughs> yeah, right. Emotional catering that is given to a star and look I'm not a movie star I'm not a TV star but in the context of those ads there are two people who are in every one of them we were co-number ones on the call sheet as they say right. I mean you become a highly recognizable person right well right so highly recognizable and all as a of, character <laughs> right that all of that is external like walking right. into the Apple store at that time and having and feeling the whole energy of the store shift as the news like i'm just there to buy a dongle or whatever and all of a sudden they put me up on the television you know the big screen and people are coming over to take well, i don't know if they're taking pictures with me at that time because there weren't i mean there were there were f- phones with cameras in them but the, that wasn't selfie culture wasn't a thing until apple changed right. the world a, a year later you know but this is 2006 but the it, but the i think the more the the more secretive and corrosive warping sense of reality is that in that that private bubble of celebrity which is that people are just doing whatever you want like suddenly my my emotional state matters than anything else in the world i'm being driven everywhere i'm i everything is being made for my comfort i'm being flown first class all sorts of things that you know even though i come from a relative place of affluence and culture like we didn't fly first class in my family you know like we didn't stay at the fancy hotels like we stayed with family a a, 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 a a man picking me up at the airport in a limousine to take me to a fancy hotel that i would never have to pay for like this is like it wasn't even like i'd stayed in hotels i didn't have to pay for but i had to submit my receipts to the new york times magazine and they would give me guff right this is all just carte blanche when i you know i had to the first round of shooting, I had to do a thing where I fell over a bunch of times onto a mattress. And the production was so concerned about my well-being. They're like, we're going to send you a a masseuse to your room tonight. I don't. What does that mean? Like, I have to take my shirt off? No. I, I'm. Why does my emotional comfort matter to anybody? I don't feel any emotional comfort ever. So why are you trying to put it on me? It's like straight back to the 12-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Like, no. And, you know... It, what what I came to understand, of course, is that n- when you are an actor uh, in a film or television or commercial shoot, and the whole shoot revolves around you, A, being there, and B, being alert and awake and able to do the job, that is the number one priority. And so they're not going to trust me to report to set on time. They're going to send a minder to pick me up and put me into the set. And they're not going to 
trust me to go get my own sandwich. They're going to be like, what can we get for you? They're going to keep me in sight at all times because if I disappear, if I wander off and do a bunch of drugs and fall down the stairs or whatever, and they don't know me, they don't know John Odron's going to be there all the time. It doesn't matter. Like there's a chance that I might disappear and then the whole thing ends. And if I'm doing a bad job, they're probably going to say, they're not going to tell me I'm doing a bad job because that they're not going to say you need to do better because that might risk sending me down into, you know, an emotional soul chasm that I won't be able to come out of and time's wasting and cost money. And if I'm doing a great job, if, you know, if they tell me I'm doing a great job, they're probably lying. I mean, it's not that I didn't do a good job on the, on the thing, but what I came to understand was all of this is being, because I am on camera talent and the talent in this case, along with Justin, the only talent that is meaningful to this production, the whole world was being bent around my needs, whims, and wishes. And it didn't take me very long to A, become very accustomed to that and B, to but at the same time also appreciate how corrosive that would be to a human being to live in a world in which everything is organized for their comfort. Not merely their creature comfort, but their emotional comfort and how famous people can become monstrous as a result or become simply suspicious and distrustful because they don't trust anybody to tell them you're not doing a great job anymore because people are making money off them. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I mean, at the same time, the backdrop of this is on, on the on the personal side of things. You know, like you end up marrying that girlfriend that we've talked about. Yes. You end up becoming a father, having two kids. Yes. And raising a family. And also, interestingly enough, starting to bounce your time between uh, New York and Maine, which has a profoundly different ethos about how to live. Yeah. And it's, so, it's so like you're navigating these worlds of yeah. hyper-focus, hyper-status, you know, like all it's you, 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 you. And then at the same time, trying to step into everyday life as like the, and also thinking about, okay, so how do I want to be in relation to this person who, you know, like I hope to spend the rest of my life with? How do I want to be in relation to my kids? What do I want to, what do I want to radiate out to them about the appropriate way to live and, and, and what to expect from the world yeah. and what to give to the world? I, I would be lying if I said I gave a lot of like thought and consideration in that way. I mean, yeah. it was in the background. The thing, the thing is, that I, I, the quality of my life for me is always having a lot of jobs, a lot of different worlds to live in. I, I enjoyed the seven years of living in one world at the literary agency, but the only, the only stable world that I need personally is the stable world that is afforded to me by my friendship and love affair with my wife, whom I've known since high school. And then this, the stability of, or the attempt to be stable for my, our kids. And we already had, by the time I started at the daily show, our, our son, had, our second child had just been born. So we, ha- we already had two kids within this framework that were already, and that's, automatically very humbling you know when you are sleep deprived because they don't care if everybody else is yeah. lavishing stuff on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah right exactly and so that so that was very grounding i guess for for lack of a better term but in terms of in terms of what my interests were beyond that i, I didn't see i didn't feel this as anything more than an extension of what my approach to life had already been which is there's an opportunity to guest host this radio show in Medford. I'm going to try that. And that's the same as, do you want to try being, you know, having a small role in this movie because we saw you on this Apple ad? Yeah, I'll try that. Do you want to do a voice in Coraline? Yeah, I'll try that. Do you want to, you know, your mom, you, you know, your, your mom has passed away. Do you want to, and your wife is a high school teacher. Do you want to spend two months out of the year up in rural Western Massachusetts? And then later, Rural coastal Maine. Yeah, I'll try that too. I like living in different worlds and probably to the, my detriment career wise. You know, the, what saved me, I think, from becoming a totally corroded monster and equally doomed me from getting more prestigious and more success in film and television is my, my understanding like, this is not the only world in the world. Like, mm. this is not the only world for me. 
like I was booked on a, I auditioned for and got booked on a incredible TV show. I should have taken the job. Um, didn't. I used as an excuse the fact that I, it was shooting during the time that my paperback book tour was happening. Truly, I was just scared to spend that much time away from my family. I wish I had done it. It would have been a great job. But it wasn't untrue that I had a paperback book tour. Like I had another, I had five different careers, you know, add to that later a career in podcasting. And that's the way I like it. So I, I think that to some degree that hamstrung me in terms of certain, like, you know, you have, if you want to be a success in television, you have to work in television. You know, yeah. if you want to be a success as an actor, that's what you got to do all the time. Right. But clearly you don't. And it's not that you don't want to be a success in any one of those one things. It's that the trappings of being exclusively ultra successful in one domain right. is not your personal definition of success. I have always been profoundly emotionally monogamous. <laughs> I mean, literally monogamous with my wife. And I would say e equally kind of like De devoted to a small group of friends that I care a lot about. I'm not seeking to build, you know, experience other worlds of emotion, but professionally polyamorous always. I just love being in different worlds and in particular, absenting myself from the world of New York City or Hollywood for six or eight weeks to go up to rural Western Massachusetts and then later, because my wife loves Maine more than any other place or person on earth to Maine, that afforded something equally very, I, th I think, or hope, a point of view for our children that was very different, you know, yeah. to see how people live in a small community. When you look at all the different things, and you also, like, along with all of this, you, you've ended up dropping into different roles in TV and film. Yeah developing kind of a one-man show slash comedy slash stand-up. Like, it's really your own thing. Yeah. It's, um, it's very... It's, that toured around. And yeah, my brand is very complicated. Right. <laughs> ended up being a Netflix special. So you yeah. had all these things. I guess my curiosity is, if you look at all this and and the, the polyamorous approach to your professional life, do you see or feel a through line through all of it? Is there something that you can sort of look at and say, like, this exists in everything that I do like this. And, and if it doesn't exist, I don't think I would say yes. I mean, I, I, it, when you described my stand-up act, it's even I had to hesitate before I said stand-up. There are a lot of stand-ups who would get angry that I called it stand-up. And even I'm not sure that it is, you know, I did, I was, I was a touring performer for starting with the book tours, but then starting in 2013 through you know, 2016, just standing on stages and telling stories, stories that became my book's vacation land and then medallion status. But, you know, it is hard to describe. Is it stand-up if it's not necessarily designed to be funny all the time? We call in the stand-up comedy world, what they call what I do, storytelling. And they call it that with a real sniff. Pejorative. Yeah, a real <laughs> yeah. like... Hmm. What what is there to like? What is there to say about a ninety minute comedy show that starts with me speaking very honestly about my life in you know as a as a father in my forties, and then ends with me dressing up as Ayn Rand and 
singing We're in the Money in a phony Russian accent. It's hard. So it's very hard for me to find a through line. Nah. You know what I mean? I'm, I am, as professionally as I am polyamorous, I think my creative impulses are as eccentric in the in the literal term of bouncing all over the place yeah. you know but maybe i mean maybe it is the the notion that everything that you've done is driven by the the opportunity to exercise the, the creative impulse like it is yeah. an, everything has some substantial act of creation in it well i was thinking about that because i'm working with a friend now on a pitch for a tv show and i was just thinking about it this morning it's a good idea for a show. And yet to me, it still feels the term I came up with is arbitrary. Hmm. Um, everything I've done, I've done because I tuned into some point of curiosity and felt compelled to follow it. Even the Ayn Rand Act, you know, there was an arbitrary prompt for it which was I was supposed to go on a podcast hosted by my friend Paul F. Tompkins called the Dead Authors Podcast, where comedians would imitate authors. So that was an arbitrary prompt. But I had but I had pro profiled an Ayn Randian objectivist bridge player. It was my first big my first big profile for the New York Times magazine. I had read about half of Atlas Shrugged, and I think I got the gist. I was fascinated with Ayn Rand, and then I watched these to sort of get a sense of what my act would be. I watched these YouTube videos of when Ayn Rand used to go on the Phil Donahue show. Mm. And the rapport that, I mean, obviously politically and ideologically very separate, but it was very clear that A, Ayn Rand had a sense of humor. She she was poking Phil Donahue on purpose, and Phil Donahue loved it. I was just like fascinated by Ayn Rand in the 70s being this having this weird on-camera love affair with Phil Donahue. And I, and that became the point of curiosity that I had to follow to the point of becoming this alternate version of Ayn Rand. So it's like, I don't know, I don't know what the triggers are. I bet someone looking back over my career could connect a lot of things. Mm. I remember when I was first starting to tell some of the, some of the stories that ended up in my book, Vacation Land, I started telling them on stage first stories about spending more and more time in Maine and renting a, you know, renting this house in Maine initially, transitioning from this world in Western Massachusetts where we had really put down real roots and now going to this other place. Not even hearing that the central, not even hearing myself, that the central conflict of the stories I was telling is like, mm, I have two summer homes. <laughs> is this relatable? And it wasn't until I was telling these stories and my friend John Roderick, who's a musician, we were performing together and he back announced me and said, ladies and gentlemen, the privileged comedy of John Hodgman. It's like, yeah, you know, someone looking from above could probably connect a lot of dots of sort of this, 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 the certain obsessions that I have, the certain points of curiosity that are mine, as well as the certain white male cishet point of view, Yale educated kind of affluent, uh, affected twerp uh, that sort of, uh, defines my point of view but from my point of, but from inside my head all i'm looking for is what's the next thing i have to do mm. so when a job is offered to me 
if I can't find, if it feels arbitrary, truly arbitrary, and I can't find a point of connection, a point of personal obsession or curiosity, I'm not sure there's any reason for me to do it. And I've done lots of arbitrary prompts. Like I've been hired to adapt, to write screenplays that have never been produced, but like adapting a documentary, but there was already some, I, I and, and he, for this one documentary, which was about live action role-playing gaming, I was like, I know nerds. This is a world, and I know where this should be set. And I know, like, immediately that prompt, that arbitrary prompt became a point of like, I need to go down this road. And yet, right now, I'm I was you know, taking the train up here, thinking about this project that my friend and I are doing, and I don't think for. And, and I was just like, this this still feels arbitrary to me. I'm not finding that point where I have to do this. Mm. And you know, that's the that's the guiding principle for me. Like, I'm not sure how this brand looks to the outside world. And I have lots of evidence that it looks pretty darn confusing. Um, because unless I get someone like Jon Stewart to say, this amalgamation of weird ideas, uh, interests and eccentricities is okay. There are a lot of people who just go, no, not interested, not interested, not interested. It's an, I'm a weird flavor because I'm... I have all these different interests. Yeah. But so, from my point of view, I know it's because I couldn't not do it. Yeah. Like, and and if that's the thing, it's just an inner knowing. It's yeah. like, look, I can't tell you what the criteria are, but but, right. but I, I know when it's a yes and I know when it's a no. And maybe it can the needle can be moved a little bit, but it unless and you know, it it gets moved. I can't tell you what's gonna necessarily move yeah. at all. So I mean I'm sure there are common themes and patterns and stuff like that. Well, one of the things I learned, I mean, you know, at the literary agency in particular is a lot of people want to be writers. Yeah. Something like 95% of the people say they have a book in them. Yeah. And, you know, people feel that if they write a book, that that's going to be validating to their lives somehow, to their experience, to their inner lives, you know? And so it's very important to people to have written a book. And people who are writing a book just to have written a book, those books are no good. You can spot them a million miles away. But when you're reading a book, because that person had to write that story, then you're in, you know? So it was a long time before I figured out that I wanted to write a book and then what that book would be before I stumbled upon the idea of a fake, a fake book of trivia, the areas of my expertise. But once I hit on that idea, I was like, I have to do that. Yeah. And I think I wouldn't want to waste anybody's time with work that I at least didn't feel utterly compelled to put into the world. Yeah. So, And I mean, which really brings us nicely to to your latest book, um, Medallion Sass. It really does. We is, set it up so good. <laughs> it's like, let's we're, just we're slide it we're right artists. in here. Yeah. Train professionals, yeah, people. That's right. Which is really kind of interesting because you're in this window right now where, you know, we have everybody fill out this thing before they come on the show. And it's like, is there anything that's really on your mind you want to talk about? And I was struck by what you shared, which was one sentence, which you said, for the first time in 15 years, I honestly don't know what my next step is. And then when I th think about med Medallion, it's really, it's a meditation on the, it's a meditation on status. It's a meditation yeah. on, on the loss of status yeah. and grasping for it. And then, and then you're- And then surrendering it. Right. And then yeah. surrendering it. And, and I'm talking about fame, talking about parenthood. We're talking about medallion status on Delta Airlines. Right. All kinds Which of becomes the proxy when you lose yeah. all the others. Yeah, like, exactly. Right. This one thing I, yeah. can, I can figure out how to get. Yeah. The other stuff it's harder to hold on to. And, you know, like lots of people don't enjoy any status whatsoever. So it's still a, a point of view of privilege. 
but anyone who has been a parent, when your kids are little, and I'm not talking about infants, but when they're a little bit older, uh, you know what fame is. You're the most famous person in the room when you come home. Every time you come home, they're like, daddy, mommy. In the same way, when I used to walk into the Apple store, it doesn't happen anymore, but like, they'd be like, PC, you are seen deeply and appreciated, even if it's a complicated relationship. Anyone who has had children knows what it feels like to be really, really famous. And anyone who has teenagers knows what it's like to lose fame, because that's when your audience starts to turn on you. And they're like, yeah, we're whole human beings. We don't need you anymore. Uh, you're canceled. Okay, boomer. Bye-bye. And you know what that feels like to lose that, to lose fame. And while I thought that I was very inured to the panic that is associated with the specific status loss of declining fame, as, you know, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart came to an end and I chose not to go on with Trevor, and then the TV show that I had a small part on after two seasons came to an end, and now I wasn't on television regularly at all, and, you know, acting and other sort of famey opportunities were becoming fewer and farther and farther between. Even, even though I thought I was inured to that panic, I felt it. I was like, oh, I'm slipping. I'm slipping and it feels terrible. How do I make up for it? I know, leave my family again and fly across the country to, you know, hit an arbitrary goal on Delta's loyalty program to make me a whole human being again. And I had to think about why that was so, why that was so powerful, even though I knew better. Even though I never expected, I never expected television fame. I always looked at it as like a weird fluke and I never expected it to last. And so here's happening. It's not, I mean, it's a different, it's in a different phase now. Why do I feel terrible about it? Well, it's because when I go into the Apple store now, no one says anything. No one recognizes me. No one remembers. A generation has grown up not knowing those ads at all. I could, I was thinking about it on the subway here, like that feeling of that I never expected to have during the highest sort of recognizable part of my life. That any room that I walked into, someone would be like, oh, that's John Hodgman, even if they didn't say anything. And lots of times they did. People want to write books because they want their inner life to be validated. They want their, they want to believe that the, that they're special and that when they write it down, other people will see them as being special. When I first made gold medallion on Delta, because I was flying across the country so much for television, uh, I didn't even know what had happened. They just suddenly said to me as I was boarding the plane, thank you for being gold. This is I didn't know why they were saying it. It's like, what is this, the outsiders? Yeah, I know. Stay gold, Stay gold Tony. Tony boy. I was like, thank you for being gold. Like, I was shook to my core because I realized in that moment, it's like, yeah, when I was an only child putting on fedoras and stuff, it's because I wanted everyone to see my gold. I thought I was gold. I wanted the world to see I was gold. But inside, I was worried that I wasn't gold. And then maybe someone would call me out and go, you're not gold. You're silver medallion. Get out of here. That's the worst medallion. And I, it made me appreciate that, like, being seen, literally being recognized on the street from television. But in general, being seen, recognized, affirmed, validated, appreciated, 
being seen is not something that happens to everybody. Lots of people go through life not being seen at all, even within their own families. And losing that dopamine hit of the simple affirmation of, it's John Hodgman. I know you from a place. As that declines, you're dealing with withdrawal. But we all go through drops in status. We all go through, you know, changes of where we are in life. And we all, you know, ideally survive them and ideally with grace. So. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like, what is the, you know, if, if there's a loss in status, if there's a loss in recognition, whatever it is, you know, like, what's the space that's that's being opened up on the other side of the pendulum as it's swinging away from status? Right. You know, it's sort of like, a, I think we get mired so much, whether it's a loss of status, whether it's grief, whatever it is. And like you said, in your context, yes, it's sort of public notoriety and fame. But in the context of, of apparently, we, like we all, there's how, something how do we in define us ourselves? that all strives for status. Um, I, find, I just recently wrote an email to sort of our community about how I'm a meditator and I use an app yeah. and, and they gamify um, your meditation. So oh, wow. you know, like every 10, you get a gold star every... And I was on a streak and I was coming really close to 500 and I had all my stars. Right. And and just something happened to me one day where I was at 496, I was four away and I couldn't meditate that day for the first time in a year and a half. Right. But the app has this function where you can actually backfill a session if you want to. <laughs> and oh. I, it was this moral dilemma. It's like, nobody's going to know. This is the perfect meditation crime. Yeah. <laughs> right? I could just of, backfill of it. Many different styles of meditation crime. Keep going. This is right. And I, and I was like, this is entirely about status. Yeah. And I was, and it was like, I was, I was like fascinated. I'm like, I've been meditating for almost a decade. Shouldn't I actually be past this? Right. I mean, especially since I, I, am, I am not a meditator. I'm a, a, a regular napper. Same thing. But, you know, the, the point the point is, I think, to some degree of, of just turning off that kind of anxious self-reflection and instead being quiet and open and disappearing to a certain degree. You know what I mean? So that you have you have tied up your meditation with a star rating system. Yeah, that's complicated. For yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like people, you know, it. W one of the things that I've been, that I, I guess, blessed with, that's that feels very theological, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I'm lucky that my brand is as confused as it is. I'm lucky that I never had, I'm lucky it's hard to describe what I do. I'm lucky that I never had one job title. Because lots of people do. Lots of people have a career as a thing, and if they age out of that career, or they get fired, or made redundant, or that career disappears because of technological change, that's, that's you know, you don't have to be an, a coastal elite to experience that loss. Like, if I've defined myself as, you know, I think about both my grandfathers worked in the paper industry, one that literally a paper factory in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, the other in the printing room of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Those jobs, those were jobs that allowed them to raise families of three to seven children 
with only one income back when there was a real middle class. But I mean, those jobs don't exist anymore. Like what, you know, they, they retired before those jobs disappeared, but like we're dealing, you know, in this country with a, a real status anxiety, people who feel that this nation itself has lost status that they imagined for it when they were growing up, a mythology of the United States that never really was quite real, but they wanted it to be real. Um, the anger at the coastal elites is simply a signifier of a different kind of status, the virtue of the of the rural working class, right? That that virtue is itself, its own kind of status. And it has to be held, it, you have to demonize others in, in order to, to hold it. These are signifiers of who we are. And obviously we'll never escape from signifiers of who we are. But when things change, when we age, when our signifiers become meaningless, when we lose our jobs or, or go into our empty nest phase, all we're left with is us. And, you know, you, you'd best, I, I think that you'd best prepare for, lo for losing your signifiers before it happens so that you're ready for it when it does inevitably. And you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I will survive this. Mm. I'm, I, am, I am something other than my job title or my role as a voter for a particular candidate or my religion or whatever. I'm me. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle also. So sitting here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Uh, remember, you only get one. I mean, act out of curiosity, not fear. Don't be afraid or try not to be. Or, you know what? Better, more like, uh, more like the spoken ritual from Frank Herbert's Dune. Fear is the mind killer I shall not fear. I'll face my fear and let it pass through me. And in its wake, only I will remain. Something along those lines. I think that old hippie knew something. Like you face fear and you let it pass through you and, you're, and you survive. So that's how you deal with fear. Yeah, and you know, don't try to be interesting. Just be interesting. You are interesting. You don't need a, a fedora uh, or long hair to prove it. And if you look back at the photos of that time, you'll be sad. <laughs> Those are a lot of different things. Yeah. Was you, were you looking for something a little bit more pithy? No. Nah. I'm, I'm incapable of it. No. Nah. <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.